You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, everyone. This is Abraham. And this is Miranda. So uh, I should probably start really quick by letting you know that Ryan is not gone or dead. Um, he has just been traveling a lot. And, uh, and so he will be back in subsequent episodes. I just realized we didn't really say much. There was just all of a sudden we had a lot of episodes with Miranda, which is awesome. Uh, and, uh, and, and Ryan hasn't really been around as much, but he's okay. Yeah, there was no foul play on my part. <laughs> By any means, I wasn't, I Secretly wasn't, you know, took him out. Just quietly making that situation disappear so that I could take over. Not doing <laughs> that at all. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so anyway, <laughs> uh, he's still around. He'll be back in another future episode um, once he gets back from all of his travels. Um, and maybe we'll even try and do a remote recording with him. Haven't decided fully yet. But uh, yeah. And you'll, hear, so and you'll likely hear from Shane, too, here in yeah. the near future. So it's just the yeah. beauty of uh, the growing team, the growing um, quality of the podcast as we get to have some new voices. Precisely. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in because we have a lot of stuff to cover. We're going to try and make this one a little bit shorter of an episode. And the topic we're tackling is is pretty elusive and nebulous. And this is this concept of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, specifically going over the history of the IQ. The and intelligence quotient. Yes. Yeah, Precisely, yeah. and and then the overall history of this. We're going to start today by talking a lot about the definition. Uh, then we're going to go into the history uh, the next time. Um, I think this is almost certainly going to extend out to three episodes, maybe further. Depends on how much we can get through in three episodes. So we have a whole series coming up on this. This is a topic that I feel very strongly about. It's very important to me, um, and it's also very complex. And there's a lot to know. And I think. A lot of people think about intelligence and they, they maybe come to this with some preformed ideas and opinions and that's okay. And uh, maybe you really don't have any, but you don't really know the nuances to this discussion. So my idea here was let's talk about this and really cover as much ground as we can and make it as um, straightforward as possible because like I said, there's just a lot of stuff to unpack here, right? Sounds good to me. And correct me if I'm wrong, Abraham, but we're really going to be focusing in on human intelligence um, for this series rather than looking at animal intelligence. Yeah, exactly. There's some cool stuff that's been done in some of the research to try and look at what animal intelligence is and how it could be measured. And that, I think, would be great for another episode, but that absolutely does not fit within within the arc of what I'm going to try and cover with what we're going to try and cover with these few episodes. Right. Perfect. Okay, so as I said, this is a multi-part, and we'll just be tackling the definition today. Then we'll go more into, I guess you could call it research, some of the hypotheses that have existed about this in the past. So let's go ahead and dive in and go over what the history is with just this definition and, and the word intelligence and smartness. I'm not actually going to go over that word specifically, but what we mean when we say intelligence refers to that idea of being smart in a way, um, and, and we'll kind of unpack that a little bit and so this comes from the latin verb intelligere i think i'm saying that right which means to comprehend or understand okay and this came to refer to essentially a particular level of scholarly understanding so professionals and teachers and philosophers and that sort of thing and it was often it often even replaced the term understanding when 
those intellectual people would have these discussions. They would simply, rather than say that I have an understanding about this, I might have intelligence about this. And so that was how that was used in, in some of those historical um, context. Now, the definition has shifted and morphed over time um, and so frequently that it didn't really have a very set definition. As a matter of fact, no one has actually really ever pinned down a definition, one that could be tied to any objective thing. Um, it sort of remained this abstract concept and that can be okay. You know, it depends on how you're trying to use it. So if you want to have a thing that is something you can really measure and uh, assign a kind of value to, you need to have something that's a little bit more objective, right? Um, if I'm going to measure the weight of something, I'm going to arbitrarily decide that at some point I'm going to call, I'm going to stop and say this amount of weight is a gram or a pound or, you know, whatever system you want to use. And so then every time I have that amount of weight, that still constitutes one of those things. And I can look at it and say, okay, we're, we're pretty, pretty sure that that amount of weight, it's always, it's always, it's a gram. It's always a gram. No matter where I put it, it's always a gram. And, uh, and they've actually, there is a, piece of material that exists somewhere that is the archetype of a gram that if you go and measure it that is exactly the perfect gram although there has been there have been some attempts to change that anyway so it's just getting to the point that when you're trying to do something where you want to wrap a lot of objective measurement around it you have to have defined it in such a way that it can be measured using some objective sort of terms. Well, that didn't really happen with this intelligence thing. They had it sort of be this abstract concept. And again, if you're not trying to nail this down and identify where it sits inside of reality as an as a entity of a thing, uh, then it doesn't matter that it's abstract. But they did try and do that. But let's go more into that definition. So some of the definitions that people have provided for intelligence include good judgment, good sense, and adapting to the circumstances. Yeah, and in addition to that, there's, you know, the capacity to act and think purposefully, rationally, and deal with the environment effectively. Um, there's problem-solving skills and the capacity to improve the baseline repertoire of those problem-solving skills. There's also just general adaptive behavior, being able to go into new situations and uh, respond in a in a pro-social or effective way. Um, dealing generally with sort of cognitive complexity or things that have a lot of elements to them. There's also like the ability to achieve goals in a large array of circumstances. Um, one that is interesting is the ability to change the cognitive structures of the mind. That is to sort of restructure and rebuild the way that you approach and try and solve things. And then some bizarre guy proposed this model that intelligence is this like force that maximizes future freedoms. Okay. And that I think he's, and there's actually one of the more recent ones. I think he was trying to sort of build on this idea that you adapt to your situation and you, you learn and change the way that you think. And by that, he's sort of meaning that it is this drive that you maybe have to adapt. Um, I don't know. Very weird. But anyway, that was one of them. We won't <laughs> go into, into that specifically, but um, we might come back to that in a, at a later time. Now, I mean, there, there does seem to be like kind of a general through line through all of these, which, you know, does come down to being flexible, adaptive, um, you know, just being able to respond in a wide variety of situations in a way that's advantageous. Yeah, absolutely. There is there is sort of the underlying theme. And I think that fits nicely with that idea of understanding that was sort of originally used. Um, and understanding in a way that is practically useful. That is that you understand something in such a way that you can behave effectively 
in the circumstance that might arise, right? So you, you can navigate problems as they come up. And that's, again, totally fine. That's a great way to define this still pretty abstract. What do you mean by complex? What do you mean by adapt to it? Do you have to adapt right away? Or is it something where you have multiple tries? Uh, is there a gradient there? Is it that you might adapt to some things better than others? Very, you know, none of those things are answered in, in that definition. It doesn't really specify what one might mean. And when it comes to precise measurement, that's going to create a little bit of a rift, but let's, let's go ahead and go a little bit through some of these, um, these other attempts to look at how people might define this. So in, this, in a 1994 publication, um, they recruited over 100 researchers to try and come up with a definition. They came up with this very long one. I'm just going to go ahead and read it word for word. So it's, quote, a very general mental capability that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It is not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-taking smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings. And they go on to say, catching on, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do, and end quote. That's essentially what they, they sort of concluded. And then a year later, the American Psychological Association provided another definition yeah so they said quote individuals differ from one another in their ability to understand complex ideas to adapt effectively to the environment to learn from experience to engage in various forms of reasoning to overcome obstacles by taking thought although these individuals differences can be substantial they are never entirely consistent a given person's intellectual performance will vary on different occasions in different domains as judged by different criteria Concepts of intelligence are attempts to clarify and organize this complex set of phenomena. Although considerable clarity has been achieved in some areas, no such conceptualization has yet answered all the important questions and none commands universal assent. Indeed, when two dozen prominent theorists were recently asked to define intelligence, they gave two dozen somewhat different definitions, end quote. So basically every person <laughs> had a different definition when asked. I think that that identified a lot of the things that we pointed out, that running theme of this idea that there are kind of a lot of different considerations when we talk about this thing that we sort of have been abstractly referring to as intelligence. And so one thing that is interesting inside of the conversation that people have had is they largely treat this concept as having a capacity for learning. So what I mean by that is they're sort of saying if you're intelligent or your level of intelligence is how much you are capable of learning in a lifetime or in a given circumstance. Okay. And, and sort of as if the potential for the skill was entirely predetermined at a biological level and one that could be specifically measured and determined by some kind of biological test. And so there is some reason that this could seem like a reasonable hypothesis. And again, this goes back to the conversation we've had before about the fact that we are limited by our morphological biological features and the shapes of our bodies and the components of our bodies. You know, if I had another pair of arms, I would be doing very different things than I do now. Um, but you know, I have two arms, two feet, 10 fingers, 10 toes, um, you know, mouth, nose, ears, and they're all capable of interacting in a very particular way with my environment and the, the stimuli that are out there. You know, I can see certain wavelengths and hear certain sounds and I can sense certain amounts of touch and all of that stuff that is bound to my body. So, 
I think it's not unreasonable for people to have concluded that therefore our biology really sets the limit on what we can learn. But again, that's, that's so different than just what we can do in a given circumstance based on the features of our body, because it's contextually bound, right? And it's always depending on the circumstances and, and kind of where we're at. There is no place that I'm ever going to be able to fly because I don't have the features for that. But there, uh, there are certain problems that might seem impossible to me now that with the right amount of education and learning would seem easy to me. And so the problem with this idea that this bound is first, we really have no reason to believe that such a boundary actually exists or that if it did exist, we'd be able to actually identify what it is. That's sort of the first problem. And the second is that any perceived boundary that we seem to have shown to exist, any perceived thing that would generally limit our ability to learn something that has been routinely broken down so many times that the evidence really suggests that no boundary on what we what we can learn, how much we can learn, that the, that the, the boundary doesn't exist. Every time we've seen like we've really pushed the limit on what we can do mentally, somebody does it better and faster and more of it. And we can't seem to find the upper limit of where that thing seems to be. So that kind of suggests maybe there is no upper limit. You know, we see that people do certain things on average, but then the extreme levels of that, they still continue to be pushed. So the counter argument to that might be that we haven't really identified the boundaries in those cases, you know, the moving of the goalposts for those extreme examples. But, you know, there could be a response to that, which is, you know, then the boundary is either much further away than we thought or else it doesn't actually exist, which is kind of, you know, what you already kind of summarized. Yeah. So, yeah, even even if that boundary was there, it seems to be so far out of reach that we haven't gotten there if it does exist. And so um, one of my favorite definitions of intelligence was by an author named David Shank. He wrote a book called The Genius of in All of Us, I think I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. And uh, he defined it as, quote, intelligence is a process, not a thing. It is a set of competencies in development, end quote. And um, I just thought that that was such a nice, elegant way of saying that what we're talking about here is not an entity, but it is sort of a process of working through things and that it is the set of our abilities that continue to evolve and develop as we're faced with that circumstance. And that's sort of what intelligence is. And that leaves it at a place where it doesn't need to be ranked or defined in a particular way. This actually reminded me as I was preparing for this and and taking notes and everything of the discussion we had on consciousness way back 40 or so episodes ago. I don't remember when that was, but it is surprising and impressive and in a way kind of disappointing really how much effort has gone into debating and attempting to measure and searching for these biological markers of intelligence without ever having an idea of what we're looking for because we never have had a clear definition. And I mean, on the one hand, I don't think a clear definition is really needed. Um, And on the other hand, I think that if we're going to try and search for something, we do have to have that clear definition. Although I don't know what we would do, even if we had that, you know, I'm not sure that would be really useful in any way. So this goes back to an example of, let's say I wanted you to go out in the world, Miranda, and find a YIG. And I just say, here's a million dollars in it for you, a billion dollars even, why not? I want to go hypothetical here. There's a billion dollars if you can go out and find a YIG. Your first question should probably be, what 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 is a yig Abraham? exactly and, and i'm just gonna say uh just go find it good luck and so you know unless unless you have any idea 
what you're looking for, you're going to go out and be, I mean, you could look at anything and say, well, I'm, I'm going to call this thing a YIG. And there it is. Boom. Mission accomplished. Billion dollars, please. Um, and I might just say, nope, that's not really a YIG. That's not what I was looking for. And, you know, the point being that there, there's nothing wrapped around that definition. You're, you, in this particular instance, you, I have created, actually, I'm pulling that from uh, literature, the, the word YIG. Uh, it's a name of a monster. But I have otherwise created this arbitrary entity and then treated it as if it were a real thing that's out in the world. And that's exactly what this thing with intelligence it, and that process we've talked about called reification. We de- define a thing and then um, we go out looking for the existence of the thing that we have just sort of made up. And we know that we've seen um, an abstract concept of that thing from which we've derived a general term, in this case, intelligence. But that doesn't mean that there's like a thing out there called intelligence. Yet a lot of people get kind of st- have, have been historically stuck on that. Okay, so let's take an example of someone who is great at chess, but they can't read. Or someone who is really, really highly well-read, but they can't beat that first person at a game of chess. Which one of those two is more intelligent? The first person who is better at chess or the, or the person who's better at, uh, who has a, a better history of reading? So the person who, the first one can maybe navigate strategic problem solving a little bit better um, that she can use for a variety of problems and maybe even better than others could. And then the second person maybe knows a lot more facts and a lot more about other topics in particular. And so again, we're looking at this, that they're both capable and they're both developing those set of abilities. And, uh, and the process of doing those things that sort of, they're both intelligent and even comparing them doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because again, they're both developing those abilities. That would be the case either way. And so, this is sort of wrapped up in this idea called multiple intelligences. And uh, this was largely, that concept of multiple intelligences was largely attributable to a man named Howard Gardner. And he wrote in 1983, this book called uh, Frames of Mind, The Theory of Multiple Intelligences. So there you go. So this is actually fairly recent, like 1983, most of this discussion around intelligence has been happening for you know thousands of years, basically. And, uh, and he defines intelligence essentially as abilities rather than an underlying capacity. Now, interestingly, the fact that he did that was criticized because by defining it as these abilities, he was essentially undermining a definition of, a, of intelligence that people had been using, which was just a general capacity for learning, right? Um, but that was kind of his point. So I mm-hmm. think he was okay. He's like, I don't proof think... is in the pudding. Right. I there think you the, go. The... <laughs> The critics here uh, were mis- misunderstanding the point of him using that uh, as his definition. Absolutely. And so he, yeah, he developed several kinds of intelligences, which uh, I think he had eight and then he added a couple more. Yeah. So he had uh, several different forms of intelligences he defined. These included musical or rhythmic intelligence, visual, spatial, verbal, linguistic, logical, mathematical, uh, bodily, kinesthetic. Um, then there was also interpersonal intrapersonal, naturalistic, existential, and finally moral intelligence. Right. And those last two of the ones he sort of added a little bit later on to say that he thought that those would be otherwise it was those first, I think, eight, I believe. Um, and that those were all, as you, as you pointed out, like sort of domains of intelligence. So someone might be really good at interpersonal intelligence, but not really good at, mis- at musical and rhythmic and uh, like abilities. Right. Um, someone might be really good at verbal linguistic uh, tasks, but be really poor on naturalistic things. 
Um, and so that was essentially the list he came up with of what he thought represented the various domains of intellect that someone might possess. And that would allow it to be much more dynamic and not necessarily as easily rankable, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. All right. There was also this idea that a lot of people may have heard of that was um, proposed essentially by a man named Charles Spearman, and he called this G. And this is the idea that all of our capabilities are based on a general capacity for intelligence. This goes back to that idea, right? That we have sort of a limit that is how much we could possibly learn. And so the G here is for general. So it was, uh, they also often it's referred to as Spearman's G. And that, I get it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that is, if you could be good at anything, it was because you had an elevated level of underlying intelligence. And if you had a low level of that underlying intelligence, then you could never really be that good at anything. So that was sort of his hypothesis. But how can we determine that? Well, I want to go on to that a little bit more in subsequent episodes. Ooh, um, teaser. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we get more into sort of the measurement piece of this, which is, I think, that's that's one of the, the most important pieces of this discussion. And I think we just need to have really unpacked very clearly what, what we're talking about here in this, this idea and the history of this idea. Okay, so let's look at how other cultures have considered the concept of intelligence because we've been talking about this and I think there's just the general assumption from people who are the, the Western Americans like ourselves um, <laughs> that, that there's just that one kind of intelligence that, other, that, that represents all the entire planet or the human species in general. But actually other cultures maybe look at this a little bit differently than we do. And so I wanted to really make sure I, I really took a little bit deeper dive to see how other cultures uh, have talked about this. And I thought it was, it was pretty interesting. So in some of those, what you might call Eastern cultures, which is often referring to those in sort of Asian areas, um, that they look at intelligence as a way for members of a community to recognize contradiction and complexity and to play their social roles successfully. So you can start to see in this a little bit how some of the cultural values impact that definition. So looking at sort of the Western idea, there's a lot more of this problem solving focus. And so this uh, part of the values there being this sort of um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps individualism. Whereas in the Eastern cultures, um, intelligence has sort of that, that similar theme of like capability and uh, but also gears more toward the sort of a collectivist attitude of uh, being able to participate successfully in your culture. So that was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, there was uh, a couple of researchers uh, named Sternberg and Shi Ying. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And um, they found that the Taiwanese Chinese conceptions of intelligence really emphasize understanding and relating to others. And, uh, and this included knowing almost in a way being politic in that you sort of you know when to show that you're uh, you're intelligent, and you know when to sort of be more humble and um, and show humility, right? Um, some others named Serpel or Serpel, maybe uh, they found that some people in African communities, uh, especially uh, those that had not as been as powerfully influenced by Western schooling and thought, uh, that they tend to sort of blur the Western distinction between intelligence and social competence as well. It, uh, for example, in rural Zambia, uh, in Africa, the concept of, I'm going to try to say this, I think it's Nzulu, Nzelu, um, includes both cleverness, which is described as being chenjala, and responsibility, or tumekila. I hope I'm 
not butchering that too badly but you're giving uh, us so, a taste you're giving us an idea right. <laughs> of the language it's good <laughs> okay um and so yeah they're they're emphasis uh, or their definition of intelligence focused more or what that concept referred to for that culture was more on cleverness and responsibility. So again, we just see that there are variations in how this is approached in other cultures in different parts of the world in different periods of time. The Luo people of rural Kenya, they have a, a little bit of a different take on it than um, the people in, in rural Zambia, where they kind of focus intelligence in on academic intelligence and specific skills like math. Uh, but they also group in things like respect, practical thinking and comprehension. Right. And so it's distinct even among people in similar geographical areas that their cultures sort of look at it different ways. And I'm sure that there's an even wider variety to look at other cultures around the world. But th those are the ones at least that we get a sample of, of how different it can be in different parts of the world. And we can sort of see the underlying theme, but also know that those distinctions are important in those communities for how they would try and approach, measure, and understand this general concept of intelligence and that this sort of Western idea of that the G, the general intelligence, is, um, is, not, is not universal. Like that doesn't necessarily pertain to all people, okay? Now, there's actually some really interesting research thinking about this idea of how this is represented differently in other cultures. Some research has found that there's actually a strong negative correlation between cultural competency and IQ performance on IQ tests. And what I mean by negative correlation is that as one goes up, the other goes down. And in this particular instance, people that are very good at navigating the circumstances of their specific culture and environment, uh, where that is a heightened level of ability, they're actually worse relative to their peers at taking a test that measures intelligence, quote unquote intelligence, by the test designers. So it's sort of that book smarts versus street smarts thing. As one, as one goes up, the other goes down in these other cultures. So this leads to the conclusion then that intelligence is at least to some extent culturally bound and therefore not really general as the idea would otherwise suggest because these are people who have a high level of competency in one particular skill that is not being represented by a test that's meant to measure the underlying capability of being able to navigate those skills. So it's like, it looks like they have a lower capacity yet they demonstrate one of the highest levels of um, competency in a particular area. That's not going to show up on that test because the test designers weren't designing it for that particular group of people, which then says if it's not designed for that group of people, then this is a culturally bound and subjective social test that is not actually measuring that capacity, right? Absolutely. So the conclusion that is almost invariably drawn from this is that if members of one culture simply enter the performance on what is assumed to assess general capacity of intelligence, then that culture gets ranked as inherently lower than the culture that designed the test. Yeah. So um, by ranked lower, meaning that they are assumed to be generally less intelligent than that that group of people who designed the test yeah yeah which is a western society thing to do it's a it's a thing we're good at yeah <laughs> it's kind of I mean, it elevating really, it really ourselves is. and um negating other cultures so it's not surprising cover, but disappointing <laughs> yeah 
want to cover that quite a bit in the next episode. So, um, but there's a fun little thought experiment, right, that we can kind of um, do is where we where we can kind of think about what would happen if a culture were to design an intelligent test based on their own definition of intelligence, and then administer that test to the original test designers and their cultural counterparts. And it's reasonable to speculate that they would once again rank far lower than the test designers' culture. So, really. The shoe could be on the other foot quite easily. Right. So just saying what you said another way, that if those designers took the intelligence test designed by the culture that they were thinking was less intelligent, those original designers might look like the stupid ones because, again, that intelligence test was not really designed in such a way that it would capitalize on their capabilities. So just a fun thought experiment. Um, I agree. All right. Well, um, you know, and as the intention goes, we try to make this one a little bit shorter. Um, and so let's go ahead and start to wrap this thing up. I want to start by first just pointing out, I think it's important to always ask that question. Why? Why in this particular case should those definitions, why should that be the definition of intelligence? Why should we measure intelligence at all? And by why I'm sort of asking, what's the purpose of all of this? And I'm teasing a little bit what we're going to be talking about as we go forward, but in a way, I'm, I'm also kind of answering the question by asking it in the first place, is there a purpose? And, you know, how do we even know that intelligence is a thing at all? It seems to be perfectly sufficient to point out that some people, some animals, some anything, they can manipulate the environment, the whatever environment they're in, in such a way that they can maximize their advantage in a given context that's that's natural selection at work right and and then they apply that same strategy whenever that worked in that original context they can apply that to new problems and then applying a single name to that process as intelligence i mean fine you just have to recognize that that's a pretty nebulous thing that doesn't really link to any particular quantifiable entity that actually exists and in, in a way if we give it that name then that can kind of confuse the process with the idea of it being a thing and so we invented this term to describe this set of sort of abstract observations. And then we sort of went out hunting for that term, hunting for that yig, if you will, as if it were a thing that is sort of out in the universe. So, you know, that's one of the problems with this. Yeah. And then it's just important to remember that this idea of intelligence has only ever been at best a way of ranking performance against a set of completely arbitrarily decided cultural ideas. It's not descriptive. Because it reports to measure something it can't define, it's not prescriptive because it's an intelligence measurement mostly leads people to believe that they are stuck with that number and it doesn't tell you what to do to change it and yields no clinically useful outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't even, the, like, what do you do with, with those measurements? They don't, uh, most of the time they imply, as you said, that you're stuck. And so there's nowhere to go from there. You just, it is what it is. And so it doesn't necessarily prescribe a, a strategy for improving uh, the circumstances for that individual. Instead, it, it implies in a way that they're never going to improve. So I'm going to recommend that you listen to next time for part two for uh, a little bit deeper dive of the history of this, some of the people that contributed to it, and a little bit more of the history of some of the tests or measurements that have been involved in the attempt to determine what intelligence is. So uh, come back to us next time. All right, so I'm happy that today we have some listener mail to review. You've got mail. First, I actually want to start with, um, we've had a few more people reviewing our podcast on iTunes. Thank and you. So, yes, thank you so much for your reviews. Really appreciate it. And um, uh, there, they've been great feedback. I appreciate it. And so this one comes from, uh, the username on here is like 
fade BX games, I, behavior games, I suppose. And so um, I just want to review, read this review. I wouldn't normally do this, but this one caught my attention in particular. It said, uh, consumable, intelligent, and occasionally funny. Commutes to work have never been more tolerable. <laughs> Thanks, WWD, WWD podcast team. Uh, thank you, Thade BX Games. Um, if that's how you say it, uh, <laughs> I love so much that it said occasionally funny. That's, uh, <laughs> and I'm glad we make the commute tolerable. Yes, absolutely. Um, I love that so much that I actually, after I read that, said, uh, if I die and on my tombstone it says occasionally funny, I feel like my life would have been well, well lived. So I thought that was really great. I appreciate it. Um, cool. Uh, the next one comes from a person named Philip Kennedy. And so Philip says, hello, I'm a new listener to your podcast and I'm starting from the beginning. You both sound like pretty logical guys who are interested in the realities of science. He goes on to say, I'll keep, um, I love science of all kinds and constantly nerd out on what I can, um, on what I can. Uh, I will keep listening in hopes to find answers to my quandary, but I'd like to point something out about your fourth episode about circular reasoning. There are misconceptions and fallacies in every aspect of life. I believe that in this regard, it is the responsibility of science to be diligent and be kept clean as much as possible. There are things in science and other aspects that can be questioned in a way that would make the outcomes of a circular answer extremely probable. And in this, I believe everyone loses. If you ask a question that would lead you back to itself as an answer, you're only serving to end the conversation in a way that you will not be satisfied. The audience will not learn and the person answering will feel either unjustly vilified or unjustly vindicated. It is a debate tactic that that's used by many politicians. And I believe it has no place in real scientific debates. And he gives an example. Um, how do you know that we need air because we can breathe? Why do we breathe? Because we need air. Um, and he also gives a, what he calls a pretty extreme example. Um, why do plants crave it? Because it's got electrolytes. Why does it have electrolytes? Because that's what plants crave <laughs> from the movie Idiocracy, which is great. Um, my point is that sometimes it should be the job of the person asking the questions to bring the conversation to its next point instead of relying on the person answering. Um, and he goes on to give another example about how dogs feel emotions. Um, and he says, so uh, how do we know that dogs can feel because they show their emotions by putting their ears back or wagging their tail? Now we ask the logical question, why do they put their ears back or wag their tail? They, they could either say to show emotion or could ask a better question that might help them learn something and also make them um, not make them look like a fool. What emotions cause a dog to put its ears back or its wag their tail? Uh, do they do these things for multiple emotions? So he says these are pretty, uh, pretty easy examples and he looks forward to more conversations. That was a lot. Um, but and I read all of it mostly because I thought there was a lot of really good points that he made in there. So first, Philip, I'd like to say thank you for sending that in. And I yeah, mean, thanks so much, Philip. Yeah, no, I think that you're absolutely right, and I really appreciate your email. And I thought you gave really good examples of that. Um, I hadn't originally plans to follow up on the circular reasoning episode, but I think that uh, you you did a really good job, sort of walking out some other considerations around that argument. And uh, and I know that was a while back, and maybe people haven't heard it, but hey, this might be a prompt to go back and check it out because the episode was kind of fun, and that was way before we had great mics. So yeah. <laughs> that was my first edit. Oh, very exciting! Yeah, you're right, my heart. Man. Yep, <laughs> it looks like you specifically reached him with your superior yeah, editing absolutely. skills. It was all me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about the commentary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah, that was great. Um, I, I actually wrote back and I gave him an example um, and uh, and said that I would include this in the listener mail. So a uh, shout out to Philip. Um, and also he said, uh, and to his wife, because I guess, uh, or fiance, it says fiance got him listening. So uh, shout out to his fiance for getting him listening. Um, and I, I wasn't sure, Philip, if there was a specific question in there. And so... 
the question why I think sometimes you can rephrase it as under what circumstances. And so if, if we asked, uh, under what circumstances does the dog put its ear back or does the, or under what circumstances does the dog wag its tail? Um, then we could incorporate a lot of things, including emotions and other things that might be in there as long as we're not relying on one sole variable because it might be a complicated answer. And so that would be initially my response if that was sort of what you were looking for. Anyway, I just appreciated you uh, writing in. Anybody else who would like to write in like Philip and uh, and give us better examples than the ones that we provided, uh, I invite you to do so, and we will probably read them on air. But um, that's pretty much what we got for today. So if you would like to reach out to us, um, you email us at info at podcast, and you can always listen to our end credits for more uh, information about where to find us. But otherwise, do you have anything else, Miranda? No, I don't. But this was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, please, definitely everyone email, give us feedback on social media. Um, We really appreciate it. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, this has been Why We Do What We Do. And this is Abraham. This is Miranda. We're out. Next week on Why We Do What We Do. And so essentially he believed that if he perceived anything in a particular way, that that personal experience that he had actually reflected the reality. I don't hide my face feelings well. Heads, I'm superior. Tails, you're inferior. Exactly. So like, you know, at one point it was believed that Earth was the best planet. Well, I mean, you know, as of right now, I think we could argue that's the best planet. We were alive on it, so we like it okay. One batch of mustard seeds in a skull and get one measurement, then do a different batch of mustard seeds in a skull and get a different measurement. So the measurements that you get from mustard seeds can't really be trusted. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.